weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomenon. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlow Weird Show. Here's your host and head weirdo, Mia Lorenzo. Welcome, weirdos. Thank you for joining me. The air was as thick as the day was long. The sun was beginning to set, and Mother Nature was painting the sky in brilliant colors of reddish-orange across this river of grass. The smell of jasmine filled the air, and the sounds of swarming cicadas grew louder as night approached. It's hard to believe that out of this vast, untamed swampland came America's winter playground, and today one of the most sought-after destinations on a global scale. Whether for work or play, Florida has always been the place to see and be seen. It draws you in. It's sexy, scandalous, weird, and wonderful. And it's no wonder Florida serves as a muse for many artists. For writers, it sets the scene. I wanted Florida to feel like a character in the book, or at least as important as a character, as important as plot or narrative development. So I really worked to develop place. I wanted it to be so embedded in the text that if you took Florida out of it, it would not be the same book. And provides an endless supply of story content. There's an idea born in Florida every hour on the hour. <laughs> it's, a, I mean, it's such a rich place. A part of it, the, you know, what drives some people crazy, it makes it a gold mine for writers. The SoFlow team met up with two authors at the Miami Book Fair, whose written works reveal their dedication and love of Florida. They are renowned author Les Standerford, who's written 24 books, and Kristen Arnett, who is new to the scene with her breakout bestseller, Mostly Dead Things. The elevator pitch, if you will, for <laughs> yes. this book is lesbian taxidermist in Central Florida takes over the family taxidermy business after her father commits suicide. So there's a lot of questions there. Why are you fascinated with taxidermy? Yeah. Well, I mean, it started off, you know, as as things usually happen. I was goofing around on the Internet, uh, looking at very, pic like, pictures of very bad taxidermy. Um, like, right, like, these, like, beautiful pieces with, like, crossed eyes or just <laughs> things that are, like, completely misshapen. And I was really enjoying them and laughing at them a lot. And the more I did that, um, the more obsessed I became with it. And I started from there looking into, like, the research of how to taxidermy something and then I guess like pun intended like kind of fell down the rabbit hole from there <laughs> like I was just like obsessive about looking it up I'm also a librarian so the research part of it felt very natural to me mm -hmm. um, as a writer I would say that I'm also very interested in bodies um, my work is like a very physical kind of quality to a lot of the time so taxidermy felt very natural to me because it's like right it's actually like dealing very much with the body and with the physical and with the tactile so did you go and visit like a taxidermy shop or do you have anything that's stuffed in your house? Yeah. Uh, I actually, uh, I mean, there's just taxidermy. Like growing up, there was just taxidermy all over me. I think there's a lot of taxidermy in the South and also specifically in pockets of Florida where people do different kinds of hunting. So I, I grew up around it. There was taxidermy in my home growing up. I just never really thought about it. As for me, I, I owned some. I went and bought something offline after like when I was starting to do edits because I was like I should own a piece of taxidermy. <laughs> What'd you get? Uh, I got um, I went on eBay and I bought a squirrel riding a Barbie beach cruiser. <laughs> oh god I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool you know I have to get that a uh, picture of that. It's now. it's gone now because the oh. thing I did was I wanted to open it up 
and look inside oh, of it. Oh, you dissected the I squirrel dissected and oh my the gosh. taxidermy uh, <laughs> using a knife that I stole from a Chili's restaurant. Oh my god! <laughs> and I keep like joking. I'm like, haha, they're not gonna let me back in Chili's, but they're probably not gonna let me back in Chili's yeah, now. Right? Uh, <laughs> I I'm, think like, it's okay for life. <laughs> yeah, but I wanted to open up. So now the pieces of the squirrel are gone because after I did it, my dogs went crazy and they were like <laughs> going wild for this like taxidermy that I opened up so it's gone now but it was a beautiful object of this very muscular squirrel riding okay, a beach since cruiser. we're going down this rabbit hole what yes. is on the inside now there that was think- basically nothing the thing that was very interesting to me about that specific animal was he he looked robust like mm-hmm. he looked very I was like damn this like squirrel has really been working out like he looked like really <laughs> muscly and then when I cut him open it was like basically hollow so oh. it was like because there's really Right. And like in the research I've done for taxidermy, there's like different ways, like different preparations that you do. So like very small mammals, a lot of the time that's they don't they don't bother putting a lot of the bones back in because it would be so difficult to be so time consuming. So usually they do like a partial freeze dry or like oh a God. dehydration kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. Um, and that's I think what they obviously what they did with the squirrel. So the inside, like he looked so muscular and inside he was like completely hollow. Oh, my God. <laughs> Okay, so you're a Florida native, yay! So are all of us sitting here. (laughs) Wonderful. I love to hear it. Team, we're all Florida natives, not to Central Florida though. But Mm -hmm. you, what's the connection between you growing up and your neighborhood in Central Florida to this book? Yes, Um, I say because people ask me a lot of the time, like, like what in the book is me? Mm -hmm. Like, if I identify with a character or anything like that. Like, the most me that's in this book is Florida, Mm -hmm. because I really tried to write about home, which for me is Orlando. Um, in this specific kind of way, I wanted it to feel like a sensory experience. So I wrote from the perspective of like, what does it feel like when you're outside? Like, what does the air feel like against like a body? Like, what do things smell like? What are the sounds you hear like different times of day, right? Like, is it like twilight? Are you starting to hear like the cicada do that scree oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. sound? Yeah, yeah. Are you like downtown somewhere and you just smell pee? <laughs> like, yeah. what is it like? Yeah, you know, that too on Biscayne Boulevard. Okay, yeah. we won't go down there. Okay. <laughs> so it was it was like a, a journey for me to to really try and present the Florida, that was the Florida I experienced, rather than, right, people hearing Florida who are not from Florida have like these expectations or things, yes, right? They like do. they think like Florida man, or if they if you say Orlando, they think what? Disney, Disney World. Yes, right. exactly. So I was like, okay, I really want to write from a perspective, like a firsthand almost, like I wanted Florida to feel like a character in the book, or at least uh-huh. as important as a character, as important as plot or narrative development. So I really worked to develop place i wanted it to be so embedded in the text that if you took florida out of it it would not be the same book okay so that was like very important to me to like shape home in a Mm -hmm. way that felt physically present perfect perfect is there a way you differentiated like because parts of florida are completely different absolutely so is there a way you differentiated central florida per se rather than miami yes um well i think i mean if you're from florida right then you know Mm -hmm. that every part of florida is different like miami is not orlando is not the panhandle exactly is not the keys like it's all very very different so in writing this i was writing very much from like a specific class i think Uh, i was writing like right like a like like a lower middle class to like lower class kind of people who are like 
uh, own a business and are trying to like work and also through the gentrification of Orlando which mm. is a thing that's happening there um, that has been happening right like the idea of places that were there being kind of paved over and new stuff being built and there's not a sense of memory or history yeah. attached to it yeah. um, and some of that is because it's like a very it's a it's a tourist industry place um, right because you do have like the theme parks and the idea that like people are coming in absorbing what they want and leaving so I wrote I tried to write a lot of that into the book as well also just like the uh, there's like a lot like a lake culture I think in Orlando or like central Florida mm -hmm. and I tried to write a lot of that in as well right like it would be a different book if you're writing about the beach versus writing about a oh, lake yeah, right true, like bodies true. of water I think define Florida because we're so surrounded by it mm -hmm. yeah do you find Florida weird in general? I mean, I do in a very beloved kind of way. <laughs> I love Florida. The weird things about Florida are what make it so interesting to me. I think I keep talking about like people are like, oh, are you going to keep writing about Florida? I was like, I'll keep writing about Florida as, you know, as long as it stays interesting to me. And there's like, right, like Florida's never going to be boring. Like it's a lot no. of things, right, but it will right. never be a boring place to live. So for me... Yes, it's weird, but it's like, I mean, lots of places are weird. Florida is its own specific animal. It I is. Think. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why I do what I do. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about your upbringing a little bit, the, yeah. where you grew up. Yeah, I grew up in Orlando. Um, I'm actually third generation Orlando. So my grandparents, my parents, and me. Uh, I grew up in a very evangelical Southern Baptist, very conservative family. So we were like at church constantly. My family was like, it's very gendered, right? Like, so I had to take sewing classes growing up and my brother went and did the stuff like hunting and other stuff like that, yeah. which is a huge bummer. It's a huge <laughs> bummer to be like sitting, like I would be like sitting in this weird little classroom of like a woman that, uh, I, that our family went to church with and I could see my brother like running around outside with like a BB gun and I'm like <laughs> with a stitch ripper just <laughs> like ripping the stitches out because I just couldn't even pay attention. I'm Chris now I can like so a beautiful pair of culottes <laughs> but uh, <laughs> do they call it culottes still? I don't know. <laughs> I God I hope not. I hope no one's wearing them but uh, I mean it was like a thing so growing up uh was I mean because I am a I'm a gay woman mm -hmm. and growing up in a very conservative family like that was obviously that didn't didn't work out great for like our relationship but yeah growing up was like very very different from like a, the way I would say my life looks now how which, is it now how how have I, you, I mean are you on are you good are I'm you, estranged I mean, was, from my family oh uh, you are yes oh, that's I mean because okay. uh, they're I mean they're very conservative yeah, um, still. Okay. But I, I, another thing too about like Florida is I've like created like you know, my own family, like made sure. like relationships and yeah. right, like being a queer person and a writer. So I have like mm -hmm. communities that are very important to me, um, and like just being in Florida and kind of helping build those communities, specifically in Orlando. Like right, so it's been, it's different, mm -hmm. but it's good. I think I. I, I don't have a relationship with them, but I have a better relationship with myself. Yeah, good, yeah. good. So you're in a good place. Yeah. I think it's important to have um, communities outside of your family anyway. Yes. It's, it's I mean, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's, right? It's definitely good to have. Yeah. I mean, I, everybody needs that sense of belonging. Yeah, I think, like, relationships are important to foster, like, different kinds of intimacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So... Uh, with the success of this book, what's yes. next? Are you working on anything? I um, am, yeah, actually, what are you working on? yes. Do tell. Uh, I had two books recently just picked up by Riverhead, which is Penguin Random House. 
they bought my next short fiction collection and they bought my next novel. Oh, wow. So the next book that's coming out will be the novel. It's called Samson. And uh, I'm still in the middle of writing it. Okay. <laughs> so that's what I've been doing. Like popping around on tour, going places. And then when I'm home, just like kind of to, on the grindstone, like writing, 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 pulling my hair out, writing, writing, writing. <laughs> Do that, does that have Florida elements too? Yes, absolutely. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay, cool. So it's, it's very much also a Florida book. And I would say it's more of a book about relationships between mothers and sons and also about how in families often everybody's an unreliable narrator. I guess that's what I could probably <laughs> say about the books right now. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you. I'm so glad you stopped by the SoFlo Weird Show. I um, was happy to be here and, and talk about Weird Florida. I love it. <laughs> Thanks. That was Kristen Arnett, author of Mostly Dead Things, talking about her work, her fascination with taxidermy, and her love for Florida. Next, we have acclaimed South Florida author Les Stanford. He's written 24 books, nonfiction historical, and 10 novels. His first, Spill, was adapted into a film. He's also the founding director of Florida International University's creative writing program in Miami. His latest book, Palm Beach, Mar-a-Lago, and the Rise of America Xanadu, tells the history of this fabled landscape intertwined with the colorful lives of its famous protagonists. I asked Les why he thinks Florida is the perfect backdrop for content creation. There's an idea born in Florida every hour on the hour. <laughs> it's, a, I mean, it's such a rich place. A part of it, the, you know, what drives some people crazy, it makes it a gold mine for writers uh, because I don't want to say clash of uh, cultures, but there are all these uh, cultures that rub up against each other. That's that's one thing about it. Not, nothing against Des Moines, but uh, you know, there's, <laughs> there's only one thing going on in Des Moines, and uh, there's a thousand things going on in in Miami at at any given moment, and uh, that just that results in stories. Yeah, it's excellent. I know that's why I love living here. Me too. Moving into your book. Uh, Palm Beach grew out of nothing very fast and became a sought-after destination for wealthy tourists and high-profile people. What was the attraction, and was it always meant to be kind of high society? No, I don't think so. You know, my whole fascination with this story uh, is it's a, it's a lot like a book called Philistines at the Hedgerow, which was published about 20 years ago that talked about the improbable rise of the Hamptons to become the favored summertime destination for privileged folks in the New York area. How that came to be. It, it wasn't preordained that the Hamptons should be the place. I mean, there's a lot of nice real estate out there at the far end of Long Island. And that book, uh, which I read, told the story of the concatenation of events that allowed it to become the place. And I had unearthed a lot of the material that's in this book when I was doing the research for Last Train to Paradise. But that first book, uh, was a, Last Train to Paradise, was about the opening of the frontier and the building of the railroad and the building principally of the railroad from Miami to, to Key West. And this material, I kept coming across these other things that had happened after the frontier had been opened, after the railroad had been built, and there really just didn't seem to be a place for it in that book. And uh, sometime after 
uh, Donald Trump had been elected, Mitchell Kaplan and I were talking about Trump referring to Mar-a-Lago as his Southern White House. And I said, oh, you know, that's what Marjorie Merriweather Post always uh, intended that Mar-a-Lago should be after her death because she thought otherwise the place was going to be torn down because it had gotten too expensive to maintain a place like that, 17 acres, 128 rooms. She was afraid it wouldn't meet the wrecking ball, and if she thought if she gave it to the government to be used as a more luxurious Camp David, that might save it. And Mitchell looked at me, and he said, what else do you know about wow, Palm Beach? Yeah. And I began to tell yeah. him stories, and he said, wait a minute, I think now's the time <laughs> to write that kind of a sequel to uh, Last Train to Paradise. So that's, that's where this book comes from. You say the high walls of Mar-a-Lago and other manses like it were seemingly designed to contain scandal within as much as keep intruders out. What scandals... Have you well, uncovered? I'm telling you, <laughs> yeah, we've seen a lot of, uh, recently, the most mm-hmm. uh, heinous, uh, that of, of Jeffrey Epstein. But, geez, from the days of Henry Flagler himself, not in uh, not in Flagler's case, but his third wife, Mary Lily Keenan, she met a very tragic end because she got herself involved with her college uh, sweetheart after Flagler died. She was still young. They, she was 34 and Flagler 72 when when they married. And when he died at uh, almost 83, she was still a relatively young woman. And she got herself involved with uh, Mr. Bingham of Louisville. And uh, that was an unfortunate uh, reapproachment. And uh, it is said by Sally Bingham, who's researched the family history, that uh, relationship did not prosper and that he kind of encouraged her uh, drug habit. A lot of well-to-do women had developed a sort of a dependency, laudanum, opium dependency, and then exacerbated by dependency on alcohol. And she didn't last, last very long. And it is said that he kind of encouraged that habit. And don't you know that shortly after her death, her untimely death, they found a rewritten will that left oh. him $5 million uh, that oh, had never been talked about before. Right. Oh, yes. <laughs> and he used that money to buy the Louisville Courier and Journal and found the uh, newspaper empire that uh, made him a very wealthy man. And Sally Bingham, as I say, uh, wrote about that particular scandal. Mm-hmm. And truth is that you come to find out that even the rich and the famous and the ultra-privileged struggle with the same sorts of human yeah. problems that ordinary people do. And yeah. because of the the money and the microscope uh, or, or telescope that they live under, those problems are magnified. Sure. And so it's no surprise that these troubles develop behind those high walls. Marjorie Merriweather Post herself and Mar-a-Lago itself, the, she discovered her marriage to E.F. Hutton was a fairy tale relationship in the eyes of the American public. They were a real-life Scott and Zelda roaring 20s couple that seemed the ideal couple. He head of the most uh, famous brokerage house in the in the nation she one of the world's richest women world's richest women and he was very handsome she was beautiful they dazzled uh, the social set in in Palm Beach and in the United States and before long she discovered that he was cheating on her and she mm-hmm. caught him finally uh, uh, fooling around with one of the maids at, at Mar-a-Lago and that was the end of that marriage and she uh, lived a, a life with four husbands trying to find the right man and oh never could, gosh. poor thing. But yeah. she herself, very gracious, wonderful woman, uh, endlessly generous, and but kind of stiff upper-lipped it all through her life, uh, looking for someone to, that yeah. she could be with and be happy with. 
your first novel, Spill, became a film, and you say that you learned to write from the University of Utah, but learned to write books people wanted to read from the American Film School in Los Angeles. Uh, explain that. Explain what you were missing there in the first... Uh... Oh, in, in writing school, uh, at writing university, we learned how to write good sentences. Uh, we ah, learned, okay. We okay. learned substance. We learned characterization. We uh, learned uh, setting and, and scene, but we didn't learn very much about how to tell a story. And uh, in Hollywood, I learned, as William Goldman says, that in studying how to write screenplays, he said screenplays are nothing uh, if they are not structure. In other words, if they don't have a story, they're nothing. And uh, that's the focus when you're writing a, a screenplay. And I had never been taught how to tell a story. And all the, I have a PhD in creative writing, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, nobody ever talked about storytelling. And I picked that up at the American Film Institute, and suddenly I went back to a book that had been shown to 35 publishers, uh, editors in New York, and rewrote that book with what I learned at the American Film Institute in mind, gave it to a new agent, and the second publisher it was sent to bought it, and that was book number one. And today, this book we're talking about is book 24, mm -hmm. and uh, it's made all the difference. And I should say that these histories, even though they're histories, I try to write them as if they were novels. That is to say, I tell, try to tell a story that's just as compelling as if it were fiction, only I don't make anything up. Yeah, but every, you know, the stories or the scandals that you just mentioned now, I could so totally see played out on the big screen. That would that would be actually from your lips to God's ear. <laughs> there you go. I know you do the creative pro uh, writing program at Florida International University. Is that something that's instilled into your curriculum? When oh you teach? well, into my classes certainly. Yeah. I tell my students I'm like a recovering alcoholic. I've only got <laughs> one thing really to talk about, and that's how to tell a story because I feel like that's what I had to learn in order to be able to get my stuff published. What made you want to become a writer? I think because I loved reading. Uh, so much myself. It was just natural. Like some kids go to the magic show and they see the magician saw the pretty lady in half and <laughs> that's what they want to do. I would read books and I would be blown away by things like the Oz books or the Hardy Boys and say, oh, yeah. that's, that's yeah. what I want to do. Yeah, I want to do. Cool. And, and I, I tried right then and there and I would show these things to my, uh, my efforts to my teachers and they'd pat me on the head and say, that's real good. Now, Les, you, you, you keep at it. And, uh, Little did I know. Yeah, look Little at the look I at the know. road it would take you down. Mm -hmm. What's next for you? I'm working on a book about the uh, uh, American Circus. The <gasps> I love it. Oh the, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, I want to have you back for that one. Well, I'll be back. <laughs> I'll be happy to. I'm really enjoying it. I get to talk about the development of what was the most popular form of uh, mass entertainment in the world. In the world, until yeah, yeah, yeah. the movies came along, yeah. Um, P.T. Barnum and his 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 trains that would come through oh, yeah, with yeah. all the animals. There used to be three holidays in America when every community stopped: Christmas, Fourth of July, and the third one was the day the circus came to town. Oh my God, that's awesome! What's your ETA on that? Uh, book is due end of next summer. Oh, okay. You're coming back. I'll be You're here. Coming back. Thank you. Thank you, Les. Great. That was renowned best-selling author Les Standerford, giving us insight to Palm Beach's scandalous past. Next, we feature a reading from Ashley Shadow, a novel by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. The story is pure fiction with a few exceptions. 
It is based on a real cold case murder of a young girl that occurred many years ago and a lingering ghost legend of a real place known as Ashley's Restaurant in Rockledge, Florida. Chapter 1, Ugali, Florida, 1934. He was a lanky fellow in his mid-30s, and some folks said he resembled a scarecrow. Pete Thomas never wore any socks with his worn-out brogans and usually had the right leg of his bib overalls rolled up so it wouldn't get caught in his bicycle chain. Like so many folks on Florida's East Coast, he had been hit hard by the Great Depression, which is why he took a job making orange crates at the packing house. It was piecework, and a good day's pay meant only four bucks, but his cracker upbringing compelled him to refuse any semblance of charity, even with six youngins to feed. He once said, I'll pick shit with the chickens before I'll stoop to taking handouts. So, every morning at six o'clock, on his way to work, he pedaled nine miles on the dusty shell road running along the Indian River. Pete was used to seeing buzzards fussing over a possum carcass on the roadside, but on this morning he noticed a peculiar stench in the air and a half a dozen of the feathered scavengers circling low over the river's edge. Curious as to what might be attracting the birds, he leaned his bicycle against a palmetto tree and walked a few yards to the riverbank, where he saw what looked like a dead manatee washed up in the edge of the water. A second glance told him it was the wrong color for a manatee. Sometimes a person doesn't want to believe their eyes. What Pete Thomas was looking at was a naked dead person. He resisted any urge, if there was one, to go near the bloating corpse. His eyes nervously searched up and down the shore for another person, living or dead, but saw no one. Capping his hand over his mouth, he made a frantic dash for his bicycle. Never had he expected anything like this. He had only wanted to get to work, now the only thing on his mind was reporting a dead person. The nearest telephone was three miles back up the road at the Horse Creek Sinclair filling station. Sweating and out of breath, it was 7.30 by the time he reached the station. Dropping his bicycle between the gasoline pumps, he ran inside and asked to use the phone so he could call the sheriff. An hour later, two deputies showed up in a sedan and he climbed in the back seat to direct them to the body. With beads of sweat running down his neck, Pete stood by the car as the two deputies went down the slope of the riverbank to examine the body. After a few minutes, the chief deputy returned to get a sheet from the trunk of the car. He slammed the trunk lid shut and shook his head at Pete. It's a broad, and from the smell, I'd say she's a bit ripe. A woman! Good God! Did somebody kill her? Can't say yet, he replied, spitting a stream of tobacco juice on the ground. Sheriff Jacobs should be along any minute. He wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. After slipping on a pair of rubber boots, he went back down to the other deputy and began rolling the body onto the sheet. Keeping his distance, Pete stretched his neck like a crane trying to see what the two deputies were doing. His eyes shifted down the road to a fast-approaching pickup truck with a white cloud of dust trailing behind. He called to the deputies, I think the sheriff's coming. Jake Jacobs was in his second term as sheriff of Brevard County, and he drove a pickup that had a big star hand-painted on the door. He was a big, burly man of 55 who usually chewed on a cigar stub. He always wore khaki-colored pants matched with a long-sleeved shirt that had a big, brass star pinned on the pocket. Slung low on his right hip was a holster cradling a long six-shooter resembling a small artillery piece. 
He never went anywhere in his pickup without Bubba riding shotgun. Bubba was the sheriff's big dog of an indiscriminate breed, and although he was not a bloodhound, he had tracked down five escaped convicts after a hurricane blew the roof off the county jail. That achievement had earned old Bubba an official position in the sheriff's department and the right to veterinary care and rations at taxpayers' expenses. As the sheriff pulled to a sliding halt behind the deputy's sedan, a cloud of dust enveloped both vehicles. Pete fanned the dust from his face as the truck door swung open and the sheriff stepped out. Beating the dust off his sleeve with his wide-brimmed hat, he glanced over at Pete leaning against the deputy's sedan and nodded good morning. He then hooked a long leather leash to Bubba and started off toward the river but noticed the door standing open on the deputy's car. With dog in tow, he turned around and walked to the car and slammed the door. He took the cigar stub from his mouth and yelled to the chief deputy, Frank, y'all left the blame door standing wide open on your car. Some fool's gonna come barreling down the road and knock the damn thing off. And then the county will give me holy hell about that. With Bubba tugging his leash and sniffing every bush, the sheriff headed down the bank on the water's edge where the deputies had partially wrapped the body in the sheet. All right, now let's see what you boys got for me, said the sheriff, bending over the swollen corpse. He pulled back the wet, blood-stained sheet for a closer examination as old Bubba strained to get a good sniff of the remains. Get your goddamn nose out of here, Bubba, scolded the sheriff. Sweet Jesus, somebody really had a fit on this poor girl. There's at least a half a dozen stab wounds here. There, over here, one's to the back of the neck, and her face is busted in here on the side. She's got a bunch of teeth knocked out. And here's this nylon stocking wrapped around her neck. Hellfire, she could have been killed from any damn near one of these things. He stood up, looking past the chief deputy at the mile-wide river. Hooking one thumb in his belt, he asked, Frank, where was she when y'all got here? Was she in the water or on the shore? We fished her out of the edge of the water, the deputy pointed to the shoreline. She was washing around right yonder in the shallows, naked as the day she was born, Probably been in the water a day or two. She's a white Caucasian female. The sheriff slid his hat back and with an exasperated sigh said, Good grief, Frank. For your information, Caucasian is white. Otherwise, she'd be colored, Chinese or whatever, and any damn fool can plainly see she's a female. The other deputy, thinking the sheriff's chiding was a bit funny, was trying to restrain a laugh building up inside, only to have it burst out of his mouth like a brain jackass. Frank gave him a dirty look. The hell you snorting about, Newt? You can't even spell Caucasian. Did y'all see this? The sheriff called attention to the dead girl's hand. Look at this here ring on her finger. I saw that, said Frank. It looks like a ruby, don't it? It is a ruby, said the sheriff. It means this weren't no robbery because they left a ring. This is a case of pure meanness. Frank, get down here and smell and tell me what you smell. I smell it from here. She's ripe as a dead hog in the sun. I ain't talking about the stench. There's another odor. Smell it. Frank took a quick whiff. Kerosene. Smells like kerosene. It is kerosene, said the sheriff, taking a draw on his cigar. Look there in the water where you found her. See those iridescent colors flickering around there in the sunlight? The what? Iridescent colors, those rainbow-looking colors floating there. The sheriff gestured with his cigar along the shoreline. Oil does that. It's from kerosene that washed off her. 
It's all in her hair. Looks to me like somebody doused her with kerosene. Did y'all poke around the bushes for anything? I only saw some tire tracks on the road, but that could have been from anybody, answered the second deputy. His name was Newton Simmons. At 24, Newton was the sheriff's youngest deputy. He was a passionate reader of the new comic strip about a detective called Dick Tracy and had his mind set on becoming a private eye. Me and Newt looked around but didn't find anything, added Frank. We didn't even see a cigarette butt, matchbook, or anything, except those tire tracks. No pieces of clothing? No, sir. Nothing except that stocking around her neck. Sheriff Jacobs rubbed his chin, allowing his eyes to roam the river's edge. Well, whoever did this did it in some place and hauled her out here at night and threw her in the river. The sheriff turned his eyes to Pete on the road, still leaning against the car. Is that there the feller who found the body? Yes, sir, said Frank. He's the one who called us. Well, guess I'd better see what he's got to say. The sheriff took hold of Bubba's leash and started back up the slope to the road. He glanced back at his chief deputy. Frank, y'all take the Kodak and get us some pictures of this area and them tire tracks up there. Will do, sheriff. Bubba pulled ahead as the sheriff walked up the slope to the rear of the deputy's car where Pete was standing. Howdy. I hear you found the body down there. Yes, sir, I did. I was riding by, and there was a bunch of buzzards flying around over there. I figured something was dead, but never expected it to be a human being. You said you were riding by? Yes, sir, on my bicycle. I rode up yonder to the Sinclair filling station where I called y'all and then waited there for them boys down there so I could show them where she was. And then we... The sheriff cut him short. Got a name? You live around here? Uh, Pete. Uh, well, my name's really Ralph. Ralph Thomas. Folks just call me Pete. I work up yonder at Ledbetter's packing house. Jimmy Ledbetter's place, huh? The sheriff turned toward the deputies who were struggling up the riverbank with the body wrapped in the wet pink stained sheet. Frank, I'm heading back to town. Y'all go ahead and finish up. Having no desire to hang around waiting for a ride, Pete tagged along behind the sheriff as he walked toward his truck. Can I hitch a lift, sheriff, up yonder to the filling station so I can get my bicycle? The sheriff opened the door for old Bubba, who promptly jumped in and took his place in the passenger seat. You'll have to get in the back. Only old Bubba here is authorized in the front seat. Pete climbed in the back, and with Bubba's head hanging out the window, Sheriff Jacobs gave a short honk on his horn, then wheeled the truck around and vanished down the road in a cloud of dust. That was an excerpt from the book Ashley's Shadow by Charlie Carlson, based on the forgotten case of Ethel Allen, an unsolved murder that remains silently in the shadows of Brevard County. Know of a weird place or have a weird tale to tell? Go to SoFloWeird.com or give us a call at 754-202-3207. If you want more Strange Florida stories, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Mia Lorenzo. Thank you for listening to the SoFlo Weird Show. Special thanks goes to our weird announcer, Joe Johnson. Michelle McArdle for promotion and production assistance. Jane Rose Cohen and Katerina Infante, our production team at the Miami Book Fair, and publicist Lisa Pally. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. Stay weird, everybody. <laughs>